Welcome to the Alienist Angel of Darkness recap podcast. My name is Alex, and I have not read Caleb Carr's The Angel of Darkness. And my name is Nick, and I have read Caleb Carr's The Angel of Darkness. Today we will be discussing Season 2, Episode 2 of the TNT series titled Something Wicked. While we will not be spoiling any of the book and by extension future plotlines of the show, we will be discussing the details through Season 2, Episode 2, so pause this and go catch up before you listen to the rest of the episode. Just in case you are unaware, the show is airing two episodes at a time in the United States, but we are still recording separate podcast episodes for each television episode. So, this episode of our podcast is only discussing the second episode from the two-episode premiere. If you accidentally skipped the first episode of Season 2, go back and check our feed for our recap of 201 X Ore Infantium. You can find more episodes of our podcast at TheAlienist.tv, and you can send feedback to feedback at TheAlienist.tv to tell us what you think of our podcast. If you enjoy this show or any other show on the Midwest Podcast Network, please consider heading over to mpn.bz slash Patreon and pledge as little as a dollar a month to make our network even better. Special thanks to Jason K, Gojo, and Sidza who have pledged at the level of $10 per month. Speaking of other shows on the Midwest Podcast Network, check out Horror Movie Yearbook as they continue their summer of Scream, discussing Scream 3, as well as the Midwest Game Nerds Podcast, where we uh, talked about The Last of Us Part 2, and soon we will discuss Ghost of Tsushima. Nick, you're doing well. Yeah, very well. We just we just finished our recording of the first episode of this podcast. So yeah, no. a little little behind the scenes for you there. We record in the industry in the biz. <laughs> we record these back to back. Yes. You know? So the banter might like be a Peter little Jackson. less. We might be a little bit more tired, but we're still here to recap the Alienist for you, and we're excited to do it. I'm gonna crush the last of my bourbon to keep it lively. There you go. As you do that, I will read the, the my description of the teaser. A man hacks away at a body in a butcher shop, pulling a ring off of a finger by his mouth and throwing body parts to a dog. Another man named Ding Dong provides a nearby saw, and they relish the fact that the two boys they're butchering won't be telling secrets anytime soon. Uh, the dude taking the ring off with his mouth just grossed me out. Yup. And it's also, working. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes, it worked. And uh the dude's name being Ding Dong also took me out of it a little bit. <laughs> yeah, the Hudson Dusters all have really weird names. Uh as you will get to enjoy later in this episode. <laughs> yes, Goo Goo, Ding Dong, and uh Fat Jack, I believe, are the three that we've been introduced to by Dude, name. I was laughing so hard every time Luke Evans said Goo Goo. <laughs> Because he can't just say goo-goo, yeah. It was goo-goo every time. (laughs) Want to talk to goo-goo knocks? Goo-goo knocks. Beautiful. Yeah, oh my god, I was was dying. It was so funny. So are the Dusters characters in in the book? Yeah. Okay, I assume we will see more of them uh, in the future, of course. But, uh, yeah. Good to know. Now, ding dong, ding dong, goo goo. I'm glad. I'm excited to hear more from the from the dusters. <laughs> they have names like characters from Mad Max. It's so great. <laughs> yeah, the Doof Warrior is the third uh, duster or the fourth duster that we have. Goo goo, doof doof, and ding dong. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Act One at the NYT office. John obtains permission to work with Sarah and find out if the two abducted children are indeed connected somehow. Laszlo accompanies Sarah to the Spanish consulate to question the servants, but they don't learn much. He would like to hypnotize the senora, but the senor and Sarah both disapprove. The Isaacsons are testing several doses of poison on rabbits to determine which would work similar to the one used on the baby. They determine it to be a hyacinth from Nightshade. Laszlo and John interrupt a public lecture by Dr. Marco to try to ask him about the baby that was found at the store, but he laughs it off with his colleagues, and later he speaks with Thomas Burns and is worried about Laszlo, but Burns says he'll take care of it. Um, so, Laszlo and Sarah at the Spanish Consulate. One thing that I wanted, that I wished that I had a little bit more context on and that I would have refreshed myself on, it feels like in this season... I'm noticing Sarah and John pushing back at Laszlo's science more. And I don't know if you agree with me or not, or if I'm wrong or I'm misremembering, but he brings up the idea about uh, facial gestures with lies that people tell, being able to notice that they're lying because of the, the like little facial tics, and also the, the hypnosis. Um, but is that... 
Am I missing something from season one? Am I misremembering that they would have like pushed back on his crazy ideas? Like I know that the larger society does, but I didn't <clears throat> feel like a lot of it came from John and and Sarah necessarily. I I don't think Sarah would push back. I think John would, but John wouldn't push back so much as like dismiss as just mm. like poppycock. Like yeah. that's because that's the way he is. Like he just is like arrogant and like thinks nah. That doesn't that doesn't make sense to me. So it likely can't be. He doesn't really. He would go to bat for Laszlo around anybody else, but like when it's just them amongst the comfort of friends, he'd be very like, bah, bah. That's the way he is with Stevie, like all the time, both like in the books, in in the stories, but also in the bookends. He's very just like, meh, like get out of here with that. Uh, That's but, the yeah, way he I, is with the lie, with the facial tick thing in the in this beginning part where last yeah, asked him about the dog. He has a really is. funny line. I didn't write it down. I remember laughing really hard though at something he says about like bluffing and poker faces. He's like, as as I would know, or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Which seems to, it's probably from like, a, I've lost a lot of money to people yes. and there's no way you could tell their life. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's not because he's winning. It's because he's <laughs> blowing his grandma's money. Yep. Yeah. And also he had a really awesome, I think it was at the end of this scene, he had a really funny send off to Sarah and John. Do they both leave Sarah and Laszlo? And he's like, goodbye. Is that this scene? Yeah, I think so. It was really funny. I just remember thinking they, they say something to him to like shit talk him i don't remember what and he just is kind of just like all right whatever <laughs> anyway yeah the dynamic between them in this scene i really liked because they it felt more comfortable like i i i agree with what you're saying that as far as refuting laszlo's expertise is out of character for sarah at least as far as the book goes because she really like admires laszlo and considers him to be the authority on like everything that he's the authority on like she because he treats her with respect, she she respects him back because it's not a, a you know a dynamic that she gets all the time. Yeah. Whereas the dynamic between her and John in the book is almost like a brother and sister. Mm-hmm. Like they're very they're very playful with each other in uh, in that way, and there's there's zero romantic tension between them in the books, and I hate every ounce of it in the shows because it just <laughs> it feels unnecessary, but it also just doesn't I. Their relationship works so well in the book that I feel like why do we need to have like romance in everything? You know, it's like why? And I'm not the only one there. A lot of people have issue with with that showing up in like cross movies and shows. It's like why do you have to have a white male and a white female lead, and why do they have to like be into each other? Like why yeah. can't they just like be pals? And that's why it's so cool in the book because they have history. I mean, they've known each other forever. And, like, there was that one story about John drunkenly proposing to her one night and she threw him into the river because that's their dynamic. In the in the book, when they... Uh, I'm going to try not to talk so much about the book, but this is funny, so I'm going to talk about it. In the book, when they go to recruit John to weigh in on this case before they bring him... When they're going to pick him up to bring him to the Senoras, yeah. she goes and gets Stevie and Cyrus and she's like, John's not answering his phone and his doorman can't get a hold of him so we need to go see you know what's up so they go to john's building because he's living in like a fancy apartment now because he's his grandmother died and they sold the house so he's not living with his grandma anymore and the door they they talk their way into getting led up by the doorman and then stevie picks the lock and the doorman says he went up there with a woman and hasn't come down so they go into his apartment and they're really quiet stevie picks the lock and lets him in and there they pass like a trail of clothes <laughs> leading to the bedroom and uh, they're waiting outside the bedroom, and they hear, he hears them like talking. And the woman comes out, and she's like a babe. Well, it's told from Stevie's perspective, so Stevie's like, "Holy shit!" Yeah. And she like she like is drunk and like giggles, and like they do this, like shh, like Sarah does this, and so the woman does it too, and she walks off to like go to the bathroom or whatever. And they go into the room, and Sarah walks over to like the edge of the bed, and John just kind of like says something about like oh come back to bed and he reaches up and like puts his arm around her waist and he's like oh don't get dressed like don't leave and sarah always has the gun on her like that's like (laughs) that's the thing and in the show she uses it or she has it in this episode but like in the book it's like a thing that she always has that gun and no one knows it and she pulls it all the time on people she pulls it out and aims it at john 
And she just says something like, even through these sheets, I think I could get both of your testicles in one shot. And he like looks up and he's like horrified and he like gets his sheet and he's all pissed off. And he's like, how did you guys get in here? And he looks and he sees Stevie and he's like, oh, okay, Stevie. He's like, I thought, he's like, I thought as a man, as a fellow man, you would understand and you would not, you know, besmirch me like this. It's really funny. And honestly, now that I am reading it now, having watched the show, I can 100% picture Luke Evans like in the role. And he would have killed it for like all these like really silly scenes where they just basically showcase John as just like a kind of a buffoon, which is yeah. really fun. But uh, that's the kind of relationship that he and Sarah have where like she's just going to like take every opportunity to humiliate him and call him out for being a boob. And he's going to give her crap about being a woman in the police force. But like, you know, it's it's more of like a, a friendly, almost sibling relationship. Yeah. So this scene had shades of it. So I was really into that. Like I liked that it was kind of this like silly dynamic. It wasn't nearly what what I wanted, but it was definitely a a step in the right direction. But I know I saw one of the teasers for it and it's like him and Sarah like getting close and like moving in for a kiss. And I was like, oh, come on, man. We don't need it. We don't need it. Yeah. Yeah. It's like those, you know, movie theaters trying to make a movie for our movie studios making a movie for the four quadrants and it's like we got to have the love story for mom to fall in love with and we gotta have <laughs> yeah. dad's gotta have the smart guy to be yeah and so it's yeah and the, yeah uh, the the, it, the thing is there was a love story and it was laszlo and mary and it was it was what was beautiful and it ended in tragedy and that's that's what you get so yeah. i don't know there is actually a love story for stevie in the second book but i doubt it'll happen in the show yeah Based yeah. on the fact that CZ, Stevie, I don't think was even in the first episode. I think he's only in this one I'm, for like for like a scene. He's only in one of them, like for like one part. He had a scene in the first one for sure. There was one that was at a distance where it was like it could have been anybody on top of the carriage, but they call him Stevie. Yeah. But okay. the second scene, the scene where Laszlo is rapping at the door of the hospital, Stevie, yeah, the, okay. kid, the guy, the Matt Lentz who played Stevie in the first season did return to play Stevie in, in this episode, in that episode. So. But it does right. seem like he's at a very reduced. Uh, yeah, so is Cyrus, which is a shame because they're both really important, awesome characters in the books. Yeah. Um. All right. Yeah. The hypnosis thing is hypnosis something in the in the second book specifically. I think they do. Yeah, they do. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. It's weird because hypnosis, I also feel like, is something nowadays that is also still not really fully recognized as like. Uh as like a legitimate technique in some ways. I mean, it's certainly more prevalent and more people have accepted it now than back in 1897, but it does seem it, it, it felt like something that I would still kind of be like, mm, I don't really know what's that, what, the, what that could really benefit them with. But well, I, I would certainly understand the apprehension of being put under hypnosis. Cause it's, that's an uncomfortable notion. Somebody poking around and you're unconscious without you being present to, to at least even witness it. Yeah, very true. Very true. I understand the Senora's hesitation, basically. Yeah, Yeah, that makes sense. Well, and also, I fully understand even Sarah's hesitation at, like, I'm trying to treat this as, like, a... a, I I understand it from the sense of, like, she's like, I'm striking out on my own, I need to make this a legitimate investigation, blah, 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 blah. But as we had kind of discussed, it doesn't feel like she... I also feel like Laszlo would not have necessarily gone out of turn as he does in this episode to be like hey i want to hypnotize you and gone around sarah about it so yeah that seemed weird in this case but we'll get to that soon um um the isaacson's working on the rabbits with the poison uh seemed very isaacson's which is good i like the the lab scenes Mm -hmm. um do (laughs) you yeah isn't that crazy (laughs) science guy like science um, but the the public lecture with Doctor Marco, I think, was very good as well. And, and yeah, Laszlo, great scene. I this laughed was... so hard at Laszlo slamming the door as he walked in. Yep. <laughs> and and then also like Laszlo walks up and starts to ask his question. And then John stands up and is like, "Uh, yes, the New York Times here." Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was perfect. Like not not quite as smooth as it was in his head. Yeah, <laughs> no. it was awesome. No. He's, he's yeah. so disappointed that Laszlo's blown his cover, but he's like, all right, well, I'll jump in. Yeah, it was funny. No, that, that scene was awesome, and it really was the one that made me 
really think, okay, Daniel Bruhl's nailing it in this scene. Because, like, Laszlo's got that fire in there that doesn't come out all the time. But when it does, you sit up and take notice. It's like, at least for me, like, when you hear, when you're like a kid and you hear your dad swear, you're like, Mm -hmm. oh my God. Like, it has (laughs) so much meaning. Like, dad said, damn. Like, it, (laughs) it, like, carries weight because you just don't see it that often. And like I said, mm-hmm. a lot of other people's dads swear all the time, so it's not a big deal. But uh, with Laszlo, yeah, when he really like gets gets turned on and, and turned up about something, it's uh, and a little riled up and a little feisty. It really, it really pops. Well, and it's got to make him particularly mad because it's somebody who's gaining notoriety for their science, but he sees it and, and it feels like he can really truly call it false when he's somebody who is getting laughed at for his science, which we as the audience know carries more legitimacy anyway. Yes. Right. Yep. And so that kind of particular dynamic between him and Dr. Marco, I think is gonna... his, uh, his Justin hammer. Yes, absolutely. <clears throat> absolutely. God, what if it was Sam Rockwell instead of, <laughs> it'd, the be, guy it'd, be, of no, it'd be distracting <laughs> too much. Um, and he, he, he walks out to do his lecture doing his dance. Just his dance. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Too much. Um, of course, Burns showing up and being menacing. We talked about that a little bit earlier as well, but just kind of the idea that Burns is like this cleanup dude and like, yeah, I can't put a finger on why he's motivated to do the things that he does other than like the people in power must also make him somewhat rich. Right. Yeah. But it'll be interesting. Like, it's weird to me that we got out of season one without really fully understanding why this like retired police chief even gives a fuck about half of this stuff. Well, I think he, I think he believes in a lot of what he's chasing down. Like he genuinely does not like these people and he doesn't like the way they're disrupting the, the current order of things. You know, he comes from a not quite a bygone era at this point, but it's receding into the past. And I don't think, I think that it's kind of like old man yellows, a cloud kind of thing mm-hmm. where he's just rallying against it. That's true. Like it's not, he was part of the corruption, right? And the idea that like, Oh yeah. The systems in place are fading. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Act two, John and Sarah head to the Siegel Cooper store to look up who has purchased the doll and find several people have, but one is a mysterious E.H. who has not listed an address since a purchase last year, despite buying the same doll five times. She and John agree to check out the address at Hudson Street at night. Burns visits Lucius Isaacson apart from Marcus to threaten Marcus's life in order to get information about their case and their investigation with Sarah. John's fiance appears to be an illegitimate child of William Randolph Hearst. He gives Violet plenty of money and sends her on her way. Meanwhile, Burns arrives to inform Hearst that of the second missing, missing child and the fact that the police were not called. A man visits Marco as a way to seemingly deal with a pregnant mistress. Marco promises discretion and his mistress's full health when he when she is ready. And we see a caged baby, Anna, as uh, once again, along with several photos on the wall of children that may be dead in the photos. Um, I like John and Sarah going to Siegel Cooper, talking to the dude who seemingly owns the store or manages the store. Kind of, we get to see more of that police work process, connecting mm-hmm. the dots. Always, always good to see some of that. Um, I'll put it out there right now, but this E.H. kind of puts me on the Hearst trail, but I feel like that's probably a red herring of some kind. Like, we see Burns kind of involved in, like, informing Hearst, and, like, could it be Hearst trying to cover up his wealthy... It gave me, like, a very true detective kind of vibe of, like, the ones in power covering up their, like, the misdeeds of their children. But, um, like I said, I think that could be a bit of a red herring anyway. Um, but any, any thoughts on kind of the store and Hearst and, and what we, what we see in act two here? Not really. I, I agree with you though, that the, the scene in the store was probably kind of my favorite. I liked that there was a relationship between the manager, uh, and it was Sarah, right? That he like knew. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. That was really, really good. Like, I like seeing these kind of connections. Like, John gets one later in the episode with, like, the scuzzball at the dock yeah. or in the meat the district, which is funny. Yeah, the bouncer. 
uh that was funny i like i like seeing characters call upon that kind of stuff which is cool yeah but yeah i good good sequence yeah um the little bit about violet uh weird relationship between them and more on that later i think um but yeah and then this this stuff with marco here i touched on in the last episode the idea of like um the lying in hospital also being one of those places where men would have their wives committed to like an insane asylum it seems like this is kind of a similar deal of people taking care of mistresses here and dealing abortions whether it's that or kind of whatever they end up doing um, yeah as we see later in the episode super creepy super creepy super disgusting yeah um all right act three sarah stays up late at night studying and not eating and bitsy has noticed she brings her a danish at Delmonico's, Hurst hosts a dinner with friends and Violet, as well as John. Hurst appears concerned over Violet's love of John when John gets up to leave. Hurst appears somewhat insulted and tells John that he'll need to work for him after he and Violet get married as the hours are more social. John and Sarah head to Hudson Street to find a burned down slash abandoned boarding house at the address that they got from the store. They hide in the alley from the dusters, uh, but also, uh, but then they follow them to their old pal Cyrus's bar. Cyrus tries to introduce Ding Dong to them so that they can meet, ask to meet Gugu, the one who owned the boarding house, but Ding Dong plays dumb. Um, we see Sarah kind of reflecting on the Memento Mori aspect of, like, the doll and, and kind of the drawing of the eyes on it. I don't know. We didn't, I didn't touch on that in the last episode, but I've always found, like, Memento Mori, like, photography of your dead children or relatives to be just the most unsettling and weirdest, like... I can't even look at the pictures in like textbooks or on Google or anything because it just creeps me the fuck out and it's, it's tough. But at the same time, the idea of like dealing with that grief by getting a child, getting a picture of that person and like as good of a way that you can, I think would have made sense to me back in the 1890s, but yeah, I guess back then when you couldn't really take pictures all the time, like we can now, you might want that as like a memento. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's, uh, yeah, I'm with you though. Weird. Yeah. Um, the Hearst kind of dinner at Delmonico's, that kind of whole situation <laughs> with John. Yeah, I like that scene. I yeah. like watching John try to navigate the minefield that <laughs> that this relationship is. But doing a pretty good job. I mean, that's the thing. John... John in this season is certainly more put together than he was in season one at this point, and he's he's trying. I mean, he's he's trying, and I think he's succeeding for the most part at keeping this relationship together and making it work and trying to appease the future father-in-law. Yeah, and, and it also kind of like, I like the idea that you're seeing it through Hearst's eyes of like, there's an element in his life that he's not, that he doesn't have under control completely. Right. And he's Mm. like the whole threat of like, you got to join me. You can't, we can't have somebody working for the competition once you marry my goddaughter or whatever. And just kind of like seeing the man in power kind of struggle with this dude. Who's like trying to be steadfast and be the journalist and, and do the right thing and tell the news I think is, is pretty, pretty interesting and not something i would have necessarily read off of john from season one right yeah but exactly yeah um but yeah them like talking about bicycles as if they're like this crazy (laughs) yeah (laughs) like i'd much rather mount a horse it's much easier like those newfangled bicycles (laughs) yeah there's some funny stuff in the in the bookend from angel of darkness where they talk about cars and uh Mm. There's some cars driving around in the in that bookend when Steve I think Stevie's like 35 ish. He's a tobacconist and he owns his own store and he just like is selling tobacco leaves and like blends and, and all that kind of thing. And he has like he's actually working out of the Flatiron building, which is cool. They talk about okay. that, too. Like I said, Caleb Carr's a history nerd and he's a New York nerd. And uh, so they, they paint, paints this very vivid picture of the scene. But as they're talking, like a car backfires at one point and Stevie remarks how he 
doesn't really pay it any attention, but more like jumps out of his chair and looks <laughs> over his shoulder at it like he's irritated, like, God, another one of those damned automobiles <laughs> driving around. It's a yeah. fun contrast there in the in the in those kind of bookends that are so far in time. I think it's like twenty years later. Twenty years after the events of the Angel of Darkness or something like that. So you think about these it's weird technological like, I, leaps. I feel like those moments could be so poorly like on the nose and glib and just kind of like Oh, for sure. Yeah. And and but the show kind of pulls them off anyway, and it's just kinda of like, okay. You know, like, yeah, there were probably people that were like, what demonry is this bicycle that you speak of? <laughs> yeah, 100%. And they probably talked that way, too, where it was just, yeah. like, very, very, like, haughtily remarked upon. I just yeah, think of great. that Conan sketch of him playing baseball with the... Did you ever see that? He plays, like, old-timey baseball with a crew of, like, reenactors. I don't like think so. a plane so. flies by, and he's like, what demonry is this? <laughs> no. Very good. <laughs> I should send that to you. Um, Hudson Street hiding from the dusters I thought was uh, was pretty pretty cool like John like I like the idea that John hides behind Sarah Sarah yeah there's a yeah. couple instances of that in this episode and I like it a lot it's awesome yeah and it's it's entirely in line with the book so it's it's perfect that's cool yeah that, that was pretty it's a nice little touch and the he, idea that Sarah, like, Sarah was dressed up in all black because she wanted to be inconspicuous and kind of hideable, and then John's got this, like, radiant white shirt on <laughs> underneath. Uh, yeah, that's perfect. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I Yeah, he definitely always knows that she always has that gun. And, uh, mm-hmm. it, and I feel like in the book, one of the ones, he's like, all right, Sarah, show him the gun. Like, draw the gun. Threaten him. <laughs> Threaten him. Um, and then they end up at Cyrus's. Cyrus has a bar, so this seems like a pretty big change from the, uh, from the book, at least. Oh, yeah. He's not really working with Laszlo anymore. He's, he's on his own with, I can't remember if that was, like, his daughter or his wife or... Uh, it was, it was a niece. She called him Uncle Cyrus at some point. Okay. All right. Yeah. So him kind of, he's got this bar with his niece in, in this shadier part of town, it seems. Um, but certainly, yeah, this is our first, like, named, really actually named in, uh, introduction to to uh, Ding Dong and Fat Jack. But mm-hmm. uh, Goo Goo, of course. Yeah, I Goo-goo. need to get, I'm going to, I'll I'll, uh, I'll try to get Goo Goo on the soundboard here and maybe we can put it into the, oh my God, anytime please. I'm going to mention him. All right, good. Goo Goo We'll knocks. do that for next episode. <laughs> Goo Goo. Yeah, that uh, shit was so funny. It was beautiful. I found, I, I was starting to call into question how likely or possible it would be for a black man to own a bar in New York in you know, the 19th century. Yeah. I, and I, I, I don't know. Like I was surprised at, at the, the patronage just based on like how a lot of the characters were treating Cyrus. Maybe I'm carrying some of this over from the book though, because there's definitely rampant prejudice in the book towards Cyrus. Well, and and that's fact- why I was a little surprised to see it in the show. Cause I was like thinking it seemed it seemed unusual. The fact that it's in like the seedier part of town kind of gives it a little bit of that realism. Cause it's not like it's an upstanding bar and like the wealthy part of town, but also like, um, you know, I feel like there's those stories. I think there was going to be an Apple TV movie that somebody was or Apple, Apple TV plus that was going to be a movie about a story where a white man got the bank loan for a black man's business and i feel like mm. maybe 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 laszlo's the benefactor of the bar but it's basically cyrus owning it or like you know like i, I feel like it's possible or it, we don't even necessarily like it, it is called cyrus's bar or something like that yeah right? yeah it says like montrose montrose is something which is his, his last name uh, so yeah yeah i don't know i mean i guess i could kind of see the like the commoner the more common people being down with it it's the i mean the police in the book certainly show him the most prejudice but i nah the dusters do too so i don't know it just 
I, I mean, I feel like I'm probably not alone in thinking that that was a little striking. Yeah, I think I think that's a fair kind of point. I, I'm curious to see how it comes to play in the future, and also like if, like it seems like it, as you're saying this, if the dusters do kind of give him crap, it's kind of weird that that seemed to be like their main one of their main hangouts. That's what I for, mean. Yeah, that yeah. there was something about all that that seemed weird. That like it was full of like basically like white gangster cokeheads, and I was like, this seems. Well, the other thing that I will say is that at the time, I feel as though the Irish were not given. That's true. That's they're not. True. They're they're specifically not really seen as like the the English immigrants. They are seen as they're kind of one of the first, which is ironic with minority Burns. groups. Yeah, right. And so. Doyle, all these all these Irish police. Yeah. Anyway. Um, yeah. Any other thoughts on Act Three? No, it was good to and, see Cyrus. I was really missing him. I missed I missed Stevie, but I missed Cyrus more. And uh, the interesting thing is, I think um, I couldn't remember. I feel like Robert Way Robert Ray Wisdom, who plays Cyrus, I think he was credited in the opening. Mm. So I feel like he's still considered like a regular cast member, but we didn't see him at all in the first episode. So maybe we'll see more of him, but. Yeah, I hope so. He and he and Stevie both in the books are such important like presences because they they really play into part of who Laszlo is because they're both they were both kind of considered lost causes and they're people that Laszlo took in and uh, and and he didn't really reform them but he just listened to them which is cool like he's he's not really like it's unfortunate that it is kind of painted as like a sort of he's sort of their savior because he has to be in that day and age but yeah. they are very much their own characters and they stand on their own two legs and so it, in that regard it is cool to see this this role and this this facility for for cyrus it's definitely like kind of a welcome departure from the book where in the book he is kind of just laszlo's like valet yeah. but uh yeah anyway it's good to see him he's an awesome character yeah absolutely all right, in Act 4, Laszlo meets Senora Linares at the consulate by himself in an attempt to get her to agree to hypnosis, but she does not comply. Two bodies are fished out of the water down by the docks, and the Isaacsons investigate. Uh, as the Isaacsons investigate, Burns spreads lies about it being Cubans killed by the Spanish to uh, Captain Doyle. At the New York Times, John is informed, and he calls Sarah to join him. John recognizes a former bouncer there and gets him to call on Gugu. Gugu corners John and gets a knife on his throat when Sarah arrives to save the day. They ask about the boarding house, but he doesn't offer much up. We see Anna sleeping in her crib and until the screen is screwed off and someone picks her up. Um, so yeah, Laszlo, Laszlo at the at the consulate by himself. I think I had remarked earlier that that seemed kind of out of character of him to be stepping around Sarah at least. Um, but you know more on that later as sarah reacts to it in the final yeah. act i guess <laughs> um i feel like he does that in the book but does it in a way that's a little more because they're on they're on a better relationship in the book it's not it's not excusable but it's a little more like he's like hear me out this is why i did it and she's like okay i'm gonna listen to you but then i might shoot you kind of thing <laughs> Well, especially given in the first episode when he's he has that moment where he says, "This is your investigation, Sarah." Yeah, like for that's him true. to directly go against that felt strange to me. Um, yeah, like, I think Laszlo's like, definitely exhibits that trait where he he might be right. He does the right thing for the wrong reason, mm. and he just is kind of going to ask for forgiveness and not permission. Like he's he he knows. I'm trying to think of how to how, what to what parallel to draw to, but basically he he knows he's right and he's just has to do it and then hope that everybody will be okay with it. Yeah, which you know is hard with friendships. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. Well, and it was interesting. I think in this particular scene of him going to see the Signora, they have this moment where they kind of like you see him try to bond with her over the art, and it feels like this piece of this little piece of artifice where he kind of knows like this is how I will try to connect with you 
and she's in a state where she's just kind of like, what are you doing here? Right. Yeah. So to kind of see the limits of his, like knowing when to turn on and off the bedside manner that you were talking about last episode, I think, I think it kind of, it's an interesting dynamic to see kind of play out and for her to just kind of be like, I'm too tired for this. What do you want from me? Yeah, it is. It is also kind of unfortunate for Laszlo because, because the nature of his work, he's always going to be met with that skepticism. Like he may legitimately love that Spanish painter, but it may and and frequently be viewed as as a as a ploy to like disarm someone. Whereas he yeah. he may just want to talk about that. Like he does actually really hold that painter in a high regard. Yeah. Um, we have the moment with Burns kind of spreading lies about the the bodies that they find at the docks. Um, we kind of learn here that these are people that Gugu had killed for some reason. I don't think we know as of why yet, but um, Burns kind of mucking things up and getting under Lucius's skin and like being kind of in this position makes me very nervous and I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> it's working. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah. And also like, uh, the, I, I don't know. I think, I think it's in this act, but there's also the moment where like people are coming to take pictures of these bodies on the ground and he's like, no, 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 no. Everybody hold back, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, but the Hearst people, you can come here and it's kind of like, we'll, we'll make sure you can get a photo of it after everybody's gone. It, yep. It felt a little bit on the nose of like, Hey, this is happening today, but also I was just kind of like, well, that's how it would have happened back then too. So. Yeah, I feel like even back then they would have been even more blatant about it because you couldn't, you couldn't film it, you couldn't record it, you couldn't prove it. It would have yeah. just been hearsay or the kind of thing where everybody knows but nobody can talk about it. So yeah. it just is what it is. You just got to roll with it. Yeah. Um, You're gonna need to cue uh, "Everybody Knows" by Leonard Cohen on your soundboard too. And just- <laughs> have an audio cue of his voice saying everybody knows there we go um how do you feel about meeting gugu man gugu is not at all like what i pictured from the books so that's fine and the the way he looks in the show makes more sense probably but the way he's described and with my own imagination just in the books is definitely different but he's dressed period appropriate i guess so it makes sense (laughs) Yeah, it was funny. Uh, his entrance, his whole little entrance scene where he smashes the bottle over the guy's head and all that is very, it's a little over the top, but it was, I was like, okay, <laughs> this, this is in line with his, with how he's described to be. We're going to establish the fuck out of this character. <laughs> yeah, right now. <laughs> Hold on to your butts. Yep. Uh, and this is the moment where Sarah pulls the gun on him and, and calls John over to her as yeah, we called out earlier. So John. good. Hiding behind Sarah's always, always good. Yep. As things should be. Yes. Goo goo. Um, and, uh, baby Anna getting pulled out of the crib. Creepy. God, dude, I hated it so much that the fact that she's under like a screen for some reason is, makes it all the worse. Yeah. Like you got to pull out a wrench to get to the baby for some reason. Like, well, (laughs) But yeah, man, that shit that all those those sequences of the baby crying are were even more. They're the worst thing for me. Like the that affected me the most. Like I was turning down the volume like while it was happening because it was literally just like making my heart hurt watching it. Mm. It was so sad to think of this like baby being separated from its mom and and being in this dark cage. Yeah. Ugh. God. What do you think about, so you had mentioned in the bookend of the book that they kind of name the killer up front and it's this expectation for, for the, the, the killer to kind of live up to based off of John's reaction to the conversation. But the first season gives us these very small glimpses of, of, uh, Beecham finding these kids and, and, uh, and kind of pulling them from where they are and, and, uh, we just get these small little glimpses of him and it looks like the show is doing something similar where we're getting glimpses of this baby being kept somewhere and shadowy figures kind of acting upon them. Um, 
we had commented last season that we kind of felt like you should have just gotten Beecham out of the way. Show him. Don't play up a lot of these things. You know, show us his facial tick. Let it be the identifying mark that it is. How do you feel about this, like, shadowy portrayal of, of the antagonist thus far? I think it's fine for now like it it makes sense in the show to keep showing the baby and like kind of keep you on the hook and show you at least as the viewer the baby's still alive but uh if the show follows the course of the book we will likely meet the killer next week Mm. like it's it's wholly possible uh if not then in week three certainly um yeah, it's it's definitely interesting because in the book you don't really learn who Beecham is. You don't know his name. You don't know anything concrete about him until like I mean it's late. It was the same way with the show too. Like you don't really like in the book when they get the name, it's like electric. Like even yeah. even when you're reading it, you're like, "Oh my god." And like they it even describes the characters feeling the same way they look at each other because they've spent months painting a psychological portrait a profile of who this person is but they don't, they know nothing fact until these kind of moments happen and they get that when they get that name it's like there's a name he has a name he's human i think that's yeah. kind of what they say is like he's a man we know now he's not some event he's not some vengeful spirit that's whisking kids away in the night he's a, he's flesh and blood and he's out there and so in the in this book it's weird when it's like relatively up front like with who the killer is and it's weird because nah, I can't talk too much more about it until later. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I just kind of found it interesting. And of course, like this, this scene here kind of implies that like, all right, something's going to happen with this baby. Is it going to be dead in the next episode or is it kind of a fake out to kind of be like, all right, like we already know. And something we didn't discuss in the first episode, I think it's going to come up here pretty, pretty quickly, but the Isaacsons determining that the baby was poisoned and then tried to be cured of the poison and then suffocated. Yeah. Um, like it, it feels as though the person who is abducting these children wants to care for them in some weird twisted fashion. And so, you know, it's hard to say if this shot here is like a head fake of like, this baby's certainly on its way to death or what weird games is this person yeah, playing? Yeah, this is just it? phase one of... Yeah, sure. Yeah. So. All right. Um, and then act five here. Uh, Sarah confronts Laszlo at Delmonico's for trying to hypnotize Senora Linares or get permission to hypnotize her at least. Laszlo shares news of a servant they were not allowed to question at the consulate so they leave immediately to do so. Captain Doyle is there attempting to arrest Senora Linares, but Sarah convinces him to let her go due to the diplomatic nightmare that would ensue. Senora Linares still won't let them question Eva, uh, the servant, but she shares details that she once let Anna fall off of a bed and had to take her to a hospital that her husband did not know about uh, in order to get care for the child. The Isaacsons share their poison findings and explain that one of them would be used to calm mothers at childbirth, so it may be found at a maternity hospital. And then finally at the lay-in hospital, Dr. Marco is delivering a baby from the woman, from a woman, the woman that was dropped off earlier in the episode. She passes out as the baby comes out, and Dr. Marco moves to seemingly kill the baby as he tells the matron to inform the mother that she lost the child during childbirth. Um, so we got Sarah confronting Laszlo, um, almost doesn't feel like this completely comes to a head because she immediately learns of this other, uh, person to go and interview at the consulate. Yep. Um, so it's kind of a deferred reaction. We'll see if there's any more fallout from Laszlo trying to go around her in the next episode. Um, but Captain Doyle, I like the idea that they're able to kind of foil Captain Doyle's plans with like the idea that this would basically be starting a war with Spain, <laughs> essentially, or it would be a diplomatic nightmare. Yeah. That's going to come into play more. Makes sense. Yeah. And and it's it it feels like it rings true that that's not something that Doyle would even think about when he's like, "All right, well, Oh, for sure. Yeah, he's just something messed orders. up happened over here. I'm going to follow my orders and arrest this person." Um but also, like, I, I feel like I want to know more about the idea that, like, this woman is missing her child and therefore becomes, like, a suspect in murdering that child. 
Like, I feel like I need a little more historical context on that with respect to Martha Knapp and the Senora. I get her not coming to the police would make it seem more sp- suspicious. But, like, in the Knapp case, I want to understand why they would jump to, oh, this woman killed her baby and then went crazy looking for it. So hopefully we learn more about that in, in the coming episodes as we understand what Dr. Marco faked in his science to kind of convince people of that. Um, but yeah, it feels like all of these points in this final act are pointing to the idea that this hospital is somehow connected to these abductions, right? Yes, yeah, it does It does feel that way. The, like I said, the hospital is and Dr. Marco are kind of new ground, so... I think I know where it's all going, but I will need to stay tuned just like everybody else to kind of be certain. Yeah. Um, the I liked the science of the Isaacsons once again. Science guy likes science, of course, but like the idea of them using activated charcoal to get a baby to throw out poison is something that's grounded in reality, of course, and, and yeah. I, I like the that the show is crossing the T's and dotting the I's in that respect. And then everything about that final scene at the hospital is just terrible yep <laughs> super horrifying yeah like I, I feel like the guy is way more menacing on his face here than than he ever was on game of thrones but uh that's i guess a good thing <laughs> <laughs> it's working yes uh all right any other thoughts about episode two here no, i think it did a really uh great job of carrying the momentum of the first one i gotta admit the lines between episodes one and two are a little blurred for me because they were back to back and i watched i watched all of episode one and probably 25 minutes of episode two in one shot so some of it was a little muddy to me but i think it's obviously just the way the show's gonna be this season so it is what it is yeah Uh, but i i I think it's strong. It still is. It had a lot of the, a lot of the scenes I liked the most so far in this season were in this episode. So it did the really nice job of laying out what's going on in episode one and giving us that real inciting incident, kicking us in the ass to get us rolling. And then episode two slowed it down just a notch to kind of let the characters kind of feel it out and see what's going on. And uh, I'm really excited to see what's next. That's for sure. I got to, I gotta hit the book hard because the show's moving <laughs> <laughs> yeah it certainly feels like it's accelerating uh it feels like it's accelerating much faster than than the first season for sure and and i like that it it just it, like you said it feels like it has this momentum that i don't feel like the first uh the first season had so early on i think it eventually got there but i'm glad to see it with the pedal to the metal it's just this viewing experience is weird, and I have to wonder how people who are going to watch this on Netflix and then maybe come listen to our show feel about it. Like, obviously, people would still be binging it in that case. Um, maybe, maybe not. Maybe you don't like to watch shows that way, and you would go episode by episode. But the fact that they're grouping two together for the rest of the season, I think, is going to be a very interesting and weird way to experience TV. And I'm kind of curious to understand why they're doing it, but I don't really know if we'll know. Yeah, it is strange. I don't know. Especially, like, they moved the premiere up a week, and then they also were like, hey, we're putting two on at a time for the whole season. So It's It's, it's almost like they're trying to get it out of the way for something else, but it's pseudo-quarantine world still, so I don't know. Honestly, I'm kind of... I kind of like it, though. I did see a commercial for Basketball. So I don't know when the NBA is starting stuff up again, but I know TNT is a big network for basketball stuff. So I'm curious if they are getting it out of the way for potential accelerated basketball season as they try to play as many games as they can before it all crumbles due to the coronavirus. The way you said basketball was like it was a show or or some foreign word you've never you've only spoken a few times. It was so they, funny. I heard tell of the sport they call basketball. Basketball? <laughs> what devilry is this? <laughs> yeah, that was good. Yeah, but anyway, yeah, I like um, it. I like it a lot. I like it a lot so far. 
Yeah, I think sure. we're both. I feel like after two episodes of The Alienist, we are more in the pocket than we were of, say, a Westworld necessarily. Uh, well, maybe for you. I don't know. Yeah, that's uh, true. That's true. <laughs> you like, were more along for the ride immediately with Westworld. I did really I like season three so. at the beginning. Yeah. You also have so. to get uh, on the soundboard. You have to get John saying goodbye for uh, <laughs> All right. for the end of our show. I will. I will work on you that. You have three things I to get, get on the soundboard. Goo goo goodbye and and Leonard Cohen. <laughs> that one's optional. That's the title of my uh, of my autobiography. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, that's pretty good. Anyway. We're loopy now, so it's time to sign off. Once again, you can find more episodes of our podcast on TheAlienist.tv. We're also on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, and Google Play Podcasts. You can email us at feedback at TheAlienist.tv to tell us what you think of our podcast and share your thoughts on TNT's The Alienist so we can read them on our show. Send us corrections, observations, or anything regarding Alienist or our podcast. We do want to hear from you, so please write in like our friend Tim did at the uh, at the beginning of episode one. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'd love to hear from anybody all of your thoughts uh, it'll be great and if you're going to put shows or book spoilers please let me know and I will pass them along to Nick so he can mine them for gold and respond to them accordingly uh, the Midwest Podcast Network has other shows about video games horror movies HBO's Westworld and AMC's Preacher find out more about these shows as well as how to support the network at midwestpodcastnetwork.com our theme music is the song Division by Kevin McLeod, and it is being used under a Creative Commons license, Attribution Creative Commons license. And that's all for this episode of The Alienist Recap. We can't wait to see what the next episode of The Alienist brings, but until then, we will see you at the chalkboard.